welcome to another edition of Albert Camus Radio. Whether you're watching these videos on the blog or you're listening to these on the podcast. Today we're going to take up a book. I say that with a little raise in the voice there. The Rebel. It is book length, but it is usually not considered one of the books of Camus. It is sort of a book length essay. It's a philosophical um, work that Camus produced in 1951. So this is the, sorry podcasters, you can't see it, but this is the trade edition of The Rebel uh, that you'll find. There's been many editions of The Rebel uh, over the years, the pocket uh, book size and then the trade edition paperbacks and hardcovers. So The Rebel is easily found if you're looking for this one in a used condition to read. I would think you could chase the rebel up for you know quite an inexpensive proposition so it's uh titled the rebel in english i think it translates best out of the french as a man in revolt is what you would probably read that as or a human in revolt today would be a better translation published in 1951 by gallimard uh, publishing again which is a consistent theme that we've seen here the pub premier publishing house in France, producing these um, exceptional works by Camus. Very good relationship between the two. They had a world-renowned, timeless, it turns out in the end, author, um, and he had a premier publishing house that had the resources and backed him fully. You don't see a lot of tension between publishing house and Camus as time goes along. I think you can best understand this text through one of the plays that we already talked about uh, the just or it's typically going to be translated in english as the just assassins uh, if you've read that play and take a look at that he really did a fine job of relaying this entire text which in english is um just north of 300 pages in that particular play and i think it shows the strength of camus i'm going to be honest this is not my favorite work by Camus by far. In fact, it's quite far down the list on the rankings, as I would say. Um, my preferences for Camus, and you certainly are free and should uh, take a different view of that if you do, but I've always been stunned by Camus' work in that he can do two things to a very high level of perfection <clears throat> and two very difficult things uh, at an expert level. Number one, he can argue philosophical points and explore philosophical points and that's an art and also a technical skill there's both of those involved there um his ability to formulate an argument and ask a pertinent question that's part of it in philosophy you can you can argue well but if the if nobody has a, has any reaction to the question or as a favorite colleague of mine professor rj stewart always used to say ask me uh particularly about some of my work so what who cares? <laughs> Essentially, Camus hits that with with uh, direct force. People care deeply about the issues that Camus uh, argues about, and then he does it as a world class writer, timeless world class writer. He's got to be ranked in the top fifty uh, all time Western writers um, for his, the power of his pen. To have those two come together is exceptional. You don't see that a lot. Dostoevsky. Uh, certainly has that ability to argue a pertinent point well 
and put it into beautiful prose. Uh, Plato had that ability. St. Augustine had that ability. Camus is in that running. Uh, so when you're up there with Plato, Augustine, um, Dostoevsky, Nietzsche, uh, you're really in quite a crew there. And I think he stands above uh, Nietzsche. And, and I think he stands above Dostoevsky. I think Camus would roll over in his grave hearing that because of the psychological relationship he had with Dostoevsky's works. But I, I find Camus harder hitting, better clarity, uh, better conclusions, better consistency in Camus' uh, work. So back to the rebel, uh, this philosophical essay, which I, he's not in his strong suit here. He's just trying to do one end of it. He's just trying to do the philosophical end of it and not uh, produce this in a play or produce this in a novel or a short story. And for, in my money, it comes up uh, a little bit short. He worked very hard on this text. Uh, he was at Cabri for most of this and, and the correspondence and the journals and the personal anecdotes are very clear. He worked about eight to 10 hours a day on this text. His health was as, probably as good as it had been in his adult life. He was under very good medical care. This is post-war. Uh, so this text was written in the late, late 40s and into 1951 when he was physically writing it then. Um, good health, good situation to be in, lower anxiety. His weight was up to 165. Uh, the biography reports and the correspondence of Camus reports. And his lungs were clean at this time. His lungs were clear at this time. So uh, he's sort of peaking uh, physically at this point. And he could write uh, eight to 10 hours a day, edit, write, uh, research, do those sorts of things uh, for this text. He considers it a nine-year project from inception to publication. Very long, very long piece for Camus. Most of Camus' works were two or three years, and they were done, and he moved on completely door shut. They were very closed projects. You ended the stranger, and you started the plague, and you ended the plague, and you started the next uh, phase of writing. So, the rebel is unique in a number of ways. There's massive name dropping, and there are significant influences in this text. So Camus read a large breadth of Western philosophical tradition uh, to write this text. Harsh criticisms come from some philosophers that he read about certain philosophers and did not read those texts directly. And I think most of those claims are unfounded. Camus' library lets us know that he did in fact read these primary sources. Some of the strong influences inside this text that Camus intentionally put into his writing and some of the names that are prominent that he studies in this study of revolt and revolution in human history uh, are Nietzsche, for instance, a very strong influence there driving the Western, what will become existentialist tradition in a different direction from Nietzsche. Dostoevsky, as I mentioned, a tremendous influence on Camus. Camus had a very high respect for Dostoevsky and has taken up considerably in this text. Hegel is in this text. Very difficult. I think of all my graduate work that I did, my course on Hegel was probably the most difficult because the reading was just so difficult to get through. So to understand Hegel 
is uh, really a, a tip of the hat uh, to Camus. Whether he understood it completely, Hegelians that have studied Hegel forever would certainly put a lot of pressure on Camus' understanding, but to grasp it in this particular way, I think there's credit due for Camus. Lenin and Marx are in this, so communism is a viable political option during this particular period of time coming out of the war. It hasn't been painted by a particular narrative or it hasn't been sealed into a historical narrative of, you know, Soviet Russia, Cuba, Romania, etc. China, it, it is still in its inception, it's growing in the West, and um, we don't have a historical definition to lock it down. So lots of Marx, lots of Lenin in this text. <clears throat> Rousseau is heavily involved in this text. And I want to end with Simone Weil. Uh, the other names are probably very typical if you've had uh, some background in Western philosophy. <clears throat> Simone Weil may not be that um, well known in those large circles, but she is of particular interest to me. I wrote a uh, quite involved paper on the relationship between Camus and Simone Weil. It's yet to be published. I haven't edited it enough to get it uh, published in the Journal of Camus Studies, but that'll be forthcoming. Um, French, very interesting French Catholic labor union uh, person who's heavily involved in social political philosophy, Simone Bay was, and her personal narrative is absolutely fascinating. And Camus took a very strong interest in Simone Bay's work after she died during the war and got her work published uh, through the power of his influence at Gallimard Publishing. So uh, she's a very strong influence in the text and uh, is referenced in there. Um, it drove me crazy as a graduate student reading uh, The Rebel because of all the name dropping. You wanna stop and see who these people are if you don't know them. Um, and it's endless in here. So be prepared for that. If you're the kind of person that's gonna track down at least a synopsis of these people. Just give yourself some time and some notes or whatever you do uh, to read this. And if not, you can just breeze through it and know that, well, this must be some Western figure. And if he or she comes up again in several iterations, then maybe I should look them up. Um, but be prepared for that. It drove me <clears throat> out of my mind um, in Professor Wolfel's uh, seminar on Camus, trying to slog my way through this and make sure that I at least had a snapshot uh, knowledge of some of the people's names that were dropped in here. So the primary themes that you're dealing with in the rebel are pretty clear. Uh, it's the motivation for rebellion and revolution. Uh, why do humans rebel and why do revolutions happen? So this is a social political text without a doubt. They both, Camus argues, they both are inherent in the human condition, be it individual or be it as we amass as groups. I think the latter is the more important here as we come together as a group. There's an inherent desire for justice, which is a bright side to Camus. You're not often seeing that, uh, the positive um, come forth in Camus, but deep down in the end, Human beings have this desire for justice that gets all messed up then, is what Camus is arguing here. The political contexts make a terrible mess of it because politics can't stay away from corruption and greed. So there is this desire for justice, but then when the political system and the social system gets going, it ends up to be unjust. 
and we lose our faith in that and then we um, push back against that. Human beings recognize the injustice and the system has to be uh, broken again. There's a very strong metaphysical argument going on in the rebel too. So be very, very careful with the metaphysical argument. What I just said about the social political argument that it is a, politics is a social construct. We construct these systems. They don't deliver justice in the end for us. So we need to tear them down and start again because we have this inherent drive for justice. Religion's the same thing in this point, right? So once justice is transferred to the God stage where God will take care of this, heaven and hell or purgatory heaven and hell or however you want to frame that, that human justice is not making some people accountable for their actions, but in the end, God will make those people accountable for those actions. Camus rejects that proposal outright because it's just nothing that can be satisfied. It doesn't satisfy that inherent drive for justice by putting it off into the future. So he pushes back against two very, very important Western systems in the rebel. But remember, he doesn't reject them pushes back against the notion of religion. Camus almost 100% of the time frames religion in a Western context of Christianity. The problem with the Christian framework as Camus sees it is that justice is put off until the end. God will deliver justice in the end, and that does not quench that inherent need for justice being done now at this time. We can do better. We can do, we can do forms of justice in this world where we have that uh, legitimacy and justice is in fact served. So it doesn't reject it outright, just says that's a huge problem with that. Communism then is the same way, right? You're, this generation is giving up for the latter. Sacrifice in this generation makes for justice later on. The framework is identical between Christianity and communism then, and they, because of that framework, they are both not solving that question of justice. We need to take up uh, that question of justice. Um, the text is almost evolutionary. It's almost like an evolutionary study. I've always thought that. There's a lot of history in it. He traces revolution. He traces revolt and shows it manifesting itself through the human condition. And in that way, he's making his case, right? That this is an inherent condition. He's arguing it from history and he's showing evidence that this is an inherent trait. <clears throat> he studies a lot of very critical areas in the text. Just mentioned history. He studies metaphysics, which would have been my little deal about the Christian uh, condition there. Uh, he studies philosophy. Uh, social political philosophy, but also metaphysical philosophy, ethics, Kant, deontology, uh, those particular areas are studied. And then there's a very fascinating section on art, which I think most of the publications that have come, secondary publications on Camus' Rebel, have had a lot of time spent in the particular section on art. So you'll enjoy that section if you read it. Um, Camus had a number of... Uh, things to say about the text directly. Um, Camus says, what is a rebel? The name of the text is a rebel. 
It is a man who says no, but whose refusal does not imply a renunciation. He is also a man who says yes from the moment he makes his first gesture of rebellion. He has a very interesting piece on the fact that rebellion is typically negative. Revolution is typically negative because it tears down. But by tearing down, it creates a positive space for us to work in. So take up the rebel. It's an important text uh, by Camus. Hopefully this guide uh, can help you uh, work your way through it a little bit. Expect something different than you've seen in the other texts by Camus. Goodbye for now.